Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon and welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm Gil Sanborn. I'm actually a member of the club and and also a civilian aide to the Secretary of the Army here in Northern California and your moderator for today's program. Uh, it's, it's my good fortune to be able to introduce today's distinguished speaker, John Darby, who's the Director of Operations for the National Security Agency and the Central Security Service. Uh, today really is a, a rare public discussion with an individual at the forefront of America's intelligence capabilities. Uh, before we start, uh, I wanted to briefly place Director Darby's presentation into some context with two perspectives that are out in the, in the public arena. The first is one that the Russians themselves uh, have regarded uh, with respect to, to information warfare as a strategic tool. And in 2011, the Ministry of Finance of Russia published a paper on Russian military activities in information space. Keep in mind, 2011. In that paper, they stated the following, quote, information war is a struggle between two or more states in the information space with the goal to damage information systems, processes, or resources, critical or other infrastructure, to undermine political, economic, and social systems, to destabilize a society and a state by massive psychological influence on the population, uh, and finally to put pressure on a state to make decisions that are in the interest of the opponent. So that's the information warfare side. On the, on the uh, cyber side, a report came out earlier this year by a computer security firm called CrowdStrike, and in it, it indicated that a study they had done uh, resulted in the fact that it takes the Russians, once they get entry into a computer system, on average, 19 minutes to take over control. It takes the North Koreans two hours and the Chinese about four hours. So that's really the context uh, in which uh, we're asking uh, John Darby to, to uh, talk today. He joined the NSA as a Russian language analyst in, in 1983. He served in a variety of field and operations positions at the NSA and the CSS, including uh, as the Signals Intelligence Director at Deputy Director of Analysis and Production, uh, and also the Deputy Chief of Cybersecurity Operations. Today, in the talk that he titled Spies, Soldiers, and Hackers, National Security Threats to the U.S., he's going to describe uh, some of the major security threats we face, who our primary adversaries are, and then their objectives against the United States. He's going to talk about the role of the NSA, how they deal with these threats, and I think uh, of particular use to us. Hopefully, he'll tell us some of the things that we can do to, to deal uh, with, with the issues that we face. So please welcome John. John Darby. Thanks. thanks, Gil. And thanks to all of you for coming out here today to hear a NSA or talk, which is kind of a rare thing, I think, these days. Uh, I'm here to, as Gil said, talk a little bit about NSA and, and the threats that uh, we as a nation are facing, uh, what NSA's role is, and how we need to work together um, across both public, private sector, academia. Um, to get after these particular threats. So let me kind of set the stage first in terms of what is NSA and then the things that NSA does, because there's a lot of folklore out there about what NSA's mission is. The mission that everybody seems to know about NSA is what we'll call signals intelligence. I mean, we do intercept foreign electronic communications. And everything we do, all that interception is based on a requirement that has come to NSA from an outside organization and has been vetted through a, a formal process. So NSA doesn't just do what it wants to for grins. It's really from a, a formal vetted requirement, uh, not only intercepting of things like emails or phone conversations, but telemetry from uh, missiles, radar systems, things like that as well. That's our SIGINT, or Signals Intelligence Mission. There's a second mission that's just as important. Uh, it doesn't get as much press, and that's our cybersecurity mission. And that's really, we, we are charged with protecting uh, and defending national security systems. 
So if you see the president talking on a secure phone, that's protected by an NSA product. Um, and that's the kind of two sides of the same coin. We are discovering secrets, foreign secrets, and we're protecting our own secrets. And some would say, well, that's a little weird. Why does NSA do both of those? But actually, we think it makes a lot of sense because I would say if you want to protect your house, who best to protect your house than somebody that makes a living at breaking in to the houses? So we, we do both. Uh, but there's, there's also a third mission, and this isn't you know, in our charter or anything, but it's just as important as the first two, and that's protection of privacy and civil liberty rights. And that is baked in into how we operate. And uh, that this is we undergo te- we take tests, you know, continually about it. We have multiple levels of oversight and how we do our job, both internal within NSA and external to make sure that we are the, the, the mission that we are executing is being done in, in a way that protects privacy and civil liberty rights. Um, so this mission that we do, I mean, we operate and want some would argue the most complicated ecosystem ever devised by mankind and that's the international global telecommunications environment that's where we live and operate i'll talk a little bit about that in the future but uh the point is operating in that environment we have to care and understand care about and understand not only communications technologies of yesterday that are still being used by the folks that we care about today's technology and also tomorrow's we have to care about all of them. Um, so a little bit about the threat environment that we're in today. Um, last year's national defense strategy was published, and it was a, it was a change from uh, our prior, national priorities in the past. For the last 18 years, our number one priority has been counterterrorism. With the publication of the 2018 National Defense Strategy, it calls out that we are now in an era of strategic competition. What that means is we've got strategic level adversaries that we need to put more focus and attention on. That in this era of strategic competition, we are engaging our adversaries, other nation states are engaging us continually at a level below traditional level of armed conflict but also testing, probing, pushing us. Uh, and we need to understand that and be equipped to push back. And this strategy calls out a few pri- primary threats. First and foremost, China. And China, if you look at the range of things China's been doing over the last you know, few decades, frankly, I mean, theft of personal identifying information, theft of intellectual property and economic and, and trade secret trade practices, um, aggressive intelligence operations, cyber operations, you know, cut across the gamut, more aggressive military operations and presence in the South China Sea, for example. Um, they're very public about their intent with the belt uh, to, to establish economic dominance. So, um, and, and China plays the long game. They're not in it for the win tomorrow. They're in it for, to establish uh, dominance over the long run. Now, contrast that with Russia. Russia is also a strategic competitor for us. Look at the things Russia is doing. Uh, we'll call it, some call it information warfare. We call it malign influence. The things that they're doing to, uh, to promote divisiveness in our society. Uh, other things, the aggressive intelligence operations. Look at what they did in the U.K. in terms of trying to assassinate a, a defector. Aggressive military operations, you know, we've seen over the years, Estonia, Georgia, Ukraine, Syria, and uh, act activities there. Uh, China and Russia, uh, I heard an analogy a while ago that actually thinks makes, I think makes a lot of sense. Think of China like climate change, the long-term thing. It may not be eating your lunch today, but if you take your eye off the ball, it's going to eat your lunch down the road. Russia is like the hurricane that's in your face right now. You've got to deal with it, and that's kind of the, the time horizons that both those two countries operate under. Uh, but it's not just China and Russia, um, Iran. And you see, you know, look in the newspapers today, the thing, things Iran is doing in the Middle East in terms of uh, you know, operations through proxy, act, uh, proxy actors elsewhere in the Middle East. Um, North Korea, you know, nuclear-capable nuclear country. 
Um, they've been launching uh, a lot of missiles lately, the last several months. I mean, that's an area we've got to uh, keep an eye on and understand exactly their intentions. They also pose a very grave and serious uh, conventional military problem. We've got a lot of forces on the peninsula there and uh, an allied nation, and we need to do what we can to protect them from a unpredictable you know, adversary there and the, the North Koreans. And there's still terrorism. It's still a problem. The strategy calls it out, calls that out not as counterterrorism, but violent extremist organizations. That's we still need to keep our eye on the ball on that. Um, ISIS is still a threat. Um, Al Qaeda, you don't hear a lot about Al Qaeda today, but believe me, they're still alive and they still would like to do harm to the United States and our allies in the worst way. Um, Violent Shia groups were seen active over in uh, Syria and Iraq today. Um, it, the, and the Haqqanis over in Afghanistan posing a threat to our troops and, and those that we support in that part of the world. Um, so those are really kind of the, the big priority threats that we as a nation and our allies are facing today. Every one of those has a cyber capability. And Gil talked about the, the uh, capabilities of some of those, the Chinese, the Russians, the North Koreans, the Iranians have a cyber capability as well. They all use them for their own, use that capability f- to achieve their own objectives. But this is a really serious tool of their national power that we need to figure out how to, uh, how to understand that tool and how to counter that tool. Um, in addition to those NSA focusing on those threats, we also maintain support for military operations worldwide. NSA is what we call a combat support agency. That's at the core of what we do. We support those that are in combat um, continually. In addition to those, we've also got to maintain a degree of agility. So because the world is a very dynamic place, things change over time. So an issue that may not be the top of the headlines or a top priority for the nation today could very well be the most important thing tomorrow. So as a national intelligence agency, we need to have some ability to to lift and shift or redirect as world events dictate. So that's a bit about the geopolitical threat environment. There's also, I talked about this telecommunications ecosystem that we work in. That can be looked at as a threat environment as well in terms of technologies that are either in use today or on the cusp of being uh, employed on a wider scale. Yeah, I could just go through some of them right now. Encryption. And we've all heard about encryption, uh, the, the rise of encryption uh, in every mode of how we communicate. You know, now, all these technologies that I'm going to run through, as an NSAer, I need to care about those technologies not only in the sense of how do I understand those so that I can uh, obtain foreign secrets, but also how do I defend our own secrets that are being carried through the use of those technologies or protected through those technologies. Encryption, um, mobile platforms. You may have heard about 5G, fifth generation uh, of mobility. Um, That capability is, is designed to basically enable Internet of Things. So how do we connect everything from a blender to a stoplight to a power grid, you know, for a a region of the United States? So that you can imagine that kind of capability in the hands of the wrong person or uh, could really wreak havoc uh, on our nation. Um, Unmanned systems. And we see that over in the Middle East right now and elsewhere, not only uh, drones in the in the uh, in the hands of our adversaries, the aerial drones, but also what about unmanned ground systems, unmanned maritime systems? It's a whole new technology problem we've got to understand. Quantum science, you know, the developments in that field. Uh, how are the Chinese and the Russians doing in that field? How can they use those capabilities against us? Distributed ledger technology. That's the, the core technology that underpin things like uh, Bitcoin, you know, blockchain. And some would say I have... Heard it said that this technology, distributed ledger technology, has the potential to transform our society much in the same way the Internet has transformed uh, our society uh, today. So um, space, greater commercialization of space. We've got more and smaller platforms out there in outer space. 
Um, that's something we've got to get our arms around as well. And then there's artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, huge growth area, huge opportunity, you know, economic opportunity, but as an intelligence agency, that's, you know, I need to use that technology to, uh, to discover secrets, but I also have to worry about how do I defend against that. Um, I can see, speaking in the cyber world, a world where we're headed in which a particular piece of malware may be directed at a particular network, hits a defense. It's already been preloaded you know, through the machine learning that if it hits a certain defense, the malware revectors and finds another way into a network. Then you've got a, another defense that's enabled by artificial intelligence or machine learning. So it's kind of a machine punch-counterpunch uh, punch, uh, operation that I can see happening in the future. Um, so geopolitical threat environment, technology threat environment. So who's going to deal with this? I'll start with NSA and talk about, you know, we've got a world-class team at NSA. And I mean world-class, and, and NSA is a joint military and civilian organization. Uh, we've got every branch of the service, uh, every branch of the military, working side-by-side side with civilians day in and day out, not only at Fort Meade, Maryland, but multiple places here in the United States, directed, uh, carrying out their mission directed overseas, but also places uh, around the world. The, when I say world-class, think of the, the skills that we have there at NSA that you really need to operate in this environment. World-class skills in terms of foreign language, uh, geopolitical analysis skills, legal skills, uh, engineering of all type, hardware, software, network engineers, communications engineers, um, yeah, mathematicians. We're a huge employer of mathematicians. And you really think about that? How, you know, why is NSA employing so many mathematicians? We make codes, we break codes. That's, uh, you apply that mathematical skill in that field uh, to a great degree at NSA. Uh, so I could go on and on with this skill mix that we've got at NSA, but it's uh, in any kind of skill that you need to bring together to run a huge global organization. And who, who are all these people? You know, they're not people in trench coats and, sp and sunglasses and big, you know, eight-foot giants or, you know, we're people just like you and, you know, here in this audience. Or people that go to sporting events, go to church, take care of their kids, worry about paying their bills, student loans. We're all Americans. We all, you know, we have a stake in protecting the, the privacy and civil liberties of, of the Americans. We are, we are you. And that's we're here. I work in my job for all of you. It's not for, you know, for an individual, a paycheck. It's I am a public servant, and everybody there at NSA works for all of you here. That's why we, we're in the business that we are. Um, we also, the people of NSA are really devoted to what we do. I talked about NSA's role as a combat support agency. We have deployed nearly 10,000 people to Afghanistan and Iraq uh, since 9-11 to work side-by-side -side with those in uniform that are carrying out our, our mission. Uh, not everybody made it back. So we have a memorial wall at NSA that has the names of the 177 people that NSA has lost um, over its history. So this is... Uh, you know, we are all in on this and, and putting ourselves forward in many dangerous places around the world. Now, in terms of this team, so what does it do? You don't read a lot in the newspaper about NSA's impact, but I'm here to tell you that virtually every international news story that you see or read about, NSA is playing a role in terms of providing information to our decision makers, whether it's in the policy realm or military realm, to help them uh, to make the decisions they need for for America and our allies. Um, I've I've been lucky enough to be in positions over the years where I've, I've interacted with a lot of senior folks across the U.S. government and our allies, and I hear things like, "I can't believe you guys did this. You all are amazing." I heard one a while ago. Do you realize you averted a war? So this is the kind of impact that the folks here at NSA are having every single day. If you ever get out to Fort Meade, Maryland. I'd encourage you to take, take an afternoon and visit the National Cryptologic Museum. That conveys a sense that over time, the types of things, how cryptology, this business that NSA does, has made a difference. From World War I all the way up through 
take it probably till about uh, Vietnam. We don't take it much further now because a lot of it's still classified. But uh, the stuff that NSA is doing right now, you're going to see in museums, you know, and decades in the future. Even with this world-class skilled team that we've got, we cannot do this by ourselves. Um, partnerships are key. Not only foreign partnerships. I mean, we've got decades of, of experience working with foreign governments, foreign intelligence services, which is basically an international, I call it international cryptologic coalition that we work side by side on some of the most hardest problems that we have. We look, take a look and see where our priorities line up, our different capabilities, and we'll work together on com- common problems. We also, we're into an era where we need to rely more on industry partnerships. And this gets into really about this cyber realm. And let me talk about a bit about that. If you look at industry today, industry holds huge amounts of data. You know, they gather for commercial purposes. Industry also holds tremendous amounts of risk for national security because industry provides, you know, actually critical infrastructure, much of our critical national critical infrastructure, the energy sector, the financial sector, and so on, is in the hands of private industry. Private industry, private industry also provides critical services for national security systems, for the government, things like cybersecurity services, um, cloud services, technology. You know, so industry is, in, is a, the way our government operates, we are tied together between industry and government. Now, look at it another way. The way I describe the, the cyber, I call, I call it the cyber continuum. That it doesn't matter whether it's Russia, China, um, a, a cyber criminal, or somebody working out of his or her parents' basement. Everybody follows basically the same process. They decide to do something. They'll acquire or develop the capability to do it. They'll launch it. It'll uh, transverse some kind of communication medium to a victim network. And sometimes it'll go deep into that victim network, that capability. And then there's exchanges back and forth, sharing, you know, passing information or or carrying out a destructive attack, whatever the particular payload is. This plans and intentions and acquisition, that's what we'll call red space. You know, we're looking at that's where China is, Russia is, the person in in his basement. Um, Then you've got the victim, we'll call the blue space. And that's where that payload is. And, And largely the blue space is industry, you know, and the government together. So, and then there's gray everywhere in between, that whole infrastructure that that actor uses. In order for us to effectively counter this cyber threat that we're posing, we, as a government, as a nation, need to understand that whole continuum. We need to understand both plans and intentions. What victim are they going after? What are the capabilities that that are going to be launched? And from a victim perspective, we need to understand as a network owner what's incoming how to defend myself best against those and if something is in that network how do i inform those that are operating that red or trying to understand that red space to help unlock the puzzle of what's going on um you know speaking of puzzle there's another analogy i'll throw out here i I like to use a lot when i describe intelligence what the intelligence business is like I, i liken it to a jigsaw puzzle and, but it's a jigsaw puzzle with a with a twist. In this particular scenario, let's say you're sitting at your dining room table and you've got a few pieces of the puzzle there in front of you. A few of them are in the carpet. The dog ate a few. Some are on the other side of town. Some are on the other side of the world. Some are at the bottom of the ocean. Some don't exist. You've got puzzles from, or pieces from other puzzles interspersed in there as well. And your job as an intelligence professional is to find those pieces and put them together in a way that makes sense. And by the way, you don't have a box top to tell you how they get put together. So you can imagine that this is a tough, complex job, particularly you, you overlay not only geopolitical threat, but the technology threat as well. Uh, so back on the cyber threat, the reality today is both government and industry networks are probed thousands of times a day, all the time. And both uh, speaking for the government, you know, NSA is uh, continually monitoring those networks that we are charged to help defend, you know, three, 365, you know, 24-7.
Um, so aside from the partnerships with industry and, and uh, you know, public-private sector together, we have also need to engage in a strategy of persistent engagement. And what I mean by that is continuous action to discover threats before they're actually launched. And what I mean by that is being more proactive. And the best example I can uh, roll out there is what we did with regard to protect the 2018 midterm elections. Now, we all saw what had happened with the 2016 elections. We absolutely knew that uh, Russia had intent to influence our, our 2018 election and, and insert divisiveness in our society. So our director, General Nakasone, um, who is also, he's dual-hatted as both the director of NSA and the commander of USS Cyber Command, which are two separate and distinct organizations headed by one person. He pulled together a team, a joint NSA Cyber Command team, who were charged with figure out how to protect the 28, uh, 2018 elections. Um, and we did. We actually gathered information, uh, uh, insights into what uh, Russia was planning to do. We helped uh, defend our, uh, our infrastructure. And uh, the third element with this was imposing cost on those that tried to influence our elections. And that's with the NSA Cyber Command working closely with FBI and DHS with everybody's respective authorities combined together as a whole of government approach to protect those elections. It's the same thing we're going to do in 2020, and we're working that now. At, uh, th- this is, again, gather insights, what's going on, make sure we're hardening the defenses, and planning and, and operating to impose costs. So that is underway. I'd love to sit here and tell you the specific things underneath that, but you just have to trust me that we're not sitting back um, as a government. Um, another part of the, the tricky thing with this, uh, cyber, this the cyber threat is you know, with the introduction, the, the key role that industry has here and partnerships, and we need to operate at speed and scale. And I talked about the thousands of probes, and cyber speed is machine speed. I mean, I, I'm a longtime counterterrorism hand. I worked counterterrorism for a long time. And we used to, if we detected a terrorist threat, got the word out to, let's say, somebody in Iraq or Afghanistan, and somebody acted on that threat within, a, if there was about a two-hour time period from the time we discovered it and disrupted that uh, attack on our forces, for example, we were high-fiving each other and saying, you know, we're so great. That's fantastic. We saved some lives. Two hours. Two hours in the cyber world is one hour, 59 minutes, and 59 seconds too late. So you got to do it like that. You know, so that's tough at speed and scale. And our laws... And, and policies aren't equipped to do that yet. Um, we're, we're developing, we're evolving, but I'll say in traditional intelligence operations, we've had decades to develop the norms on how we need to operate in that space. We're still kind of feeling our way on how we're going to operate in the cyber world. So it's, it's an exciting time, but it's also can be a frustrating time because you know, I'd love to flip a switch and fix everything. Um, but we're going to have to keep... Uh, methodically working through this and debate uh, the impacts of some of the things that we may think we may need to do to get ahead of this cyber threat. So what can you do? Um, Everybody has a role to play in terms of defending ourselves from cyber adversaries. I mean, it starts with you as an individual. Probably everybody in here has a computer or a smartphone. So what are you doing to make sure that you've got the latest software uh, your software updates. What are you doing to change your passwords? What are you doing to make sure the firewall is uploaded? Um, don't do stupid passwords. <laughs> um, and you may not think that anybody cares about the data on your system. I assure you, somebody does. And once somebody gets that data, then you're going to realize, oh boy, somebody really does care, and I need to pay attention to that. So as an individual, protect your your uh, your networks essentially. If you own a larger network or uh, an industrial network, for example. Know your network. Know where that most valuable data is and know the risk that you're carrying. So harden your defenses in that part of the network where your most valuable information is and accept the risk somewhere else. It's extremely tough um, to lock down all aspects of a complicated network. It's really about 
understanding where the data is and what risk you're willing to accept. Uh, and I'll, I'll just find, I'll wrap up right here and say today's environment, today's threats, they're diverse, they're sophisticated, and they're continuous. They're going on as we speak right now. So in order to understand these threats and get ahead of these threats, it's going to require a whole-of-government effort, not just NSA, not just NSA and CIA, not just NSA, CIA, and FBI, all of government, and not only all of government, all of society, the whole of nation. And that's where where industry partnerships are so important. Academia is so important to understand the technology um, challenges and capabilities that we we can't have even dreamed up yet that research can develop and we can apply on this problem. So it sounds daunting and difficult. One of the uh, benefits of being an old guy like me who's been in this business for a long time, been a lot of things over the years when I saw it, I said, oh, my gosh. You know, this is tough, and we're never going to be able to figure out our way through that. Well, we have every single time, and we will find a way through all this as well. I'm confident because of the, the dedicated, motivated people, not only across all of government, but across our whole nation and our allies, we will um, we'll get ahead of this and succeed. So with that, I'll stop, and thank you. Thanks to John Darby, Director of Operations for the uh, NSA. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. When, when I was preparing for this and I was contemplating the types of questions that we, we might get or ask, uh, I was reminded of a couple of years ago when, when I was in an event where General Nagasone spoke, and, and I asked him a fairly pointed question, and his response was what I would say was soft. And then I realized afterwards he, he really was saying, I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. So, so uh, obviously we, I wanted to stay away from that. But, but I'm going to get to a question that really uh, may push the edge. Did you have any money on the Nationals last night? <laughs> I, was, uh, I was telling Gil I flew in here last night, and uh, lucky enough on the airplane we had direct TV, so I watched the game the whole time in the, in the aircraft, and the Grand Slam in the 10th inning, the whole plane erupted in cheers. So <laughs> I don't think there were a lot of Dodgers fans on that uh, plane. Uh, really good question from the audience, uh, and it, it has to do with, with really allocation of responsibility, and you alluded to it uh, in your comments. Uh, and the question is, is the NSA allowed to retaliate? Are there any limits? Are there, is there any proportionality to how to respond to some of these threats? So this has to do with authorities. I mean, as a government agency, we're only, you know, we can only act within the boundaries of the authorities that have been granted to us. NSA does not have the authority to actively respond to threats. Our job is to protect systems and and, uh, gather information or intelligence to inform those that do have the authority to act. So when I talk about the 2018 elections and 2020, it's about using the the variety, uh, multiple agencies who all have different authorities, and with that mix of authorities, a certain agency that may have the authority to um, proactively respond or, or counter can operate within their authorities. But that's not NSA. This also has to do with with authorities. The question: Does the NSA focus on white supremacist groups here in the U.S.? So NSA's mission is a foreign intelligence mission. It is always we are directed a hundred percent outside the United States. Um, it's all for foreign intelligence. And if there's a, the, if there is a legal process where we can, you know, focus on uh, individuals within the United States as long as there is a, there a foreign intelligence nexus and a, and a need for that. But we are foreign intelligence. We're not focused here within the United States. That's FBI's job. Uh, here's a, a lengthy question, but I think it's interesting. I've read that China is making strong advances in quantum computing. A breakthrough in that field could produce a discontinuity in which current crypto, crypto technology is almost immediately obsolete. 
Do you think the NSA, DARPA, etc., are keeping up with this situation? Maybe the edge of the envelope here. <laughs> so all I'm going to say on that is that we're keeping a close eye on you know, Russia and China and advances in that area. But I guess to your point, uh, technology and, and uh, uh, cyber, et cetera, are moving so quickly that it presents tremendous demands on you to stay oh, sure. as current as possible. Sure. Yeah. And that's, you know, we're, we're running hot and hard to understand technologies and develop capabilities for the benefit of the U.S. government and our allies. But uh, it also is... And an foreign intelligence agency, we're also keeping tabs on process on how things are advances are in other countries to help us inform our defenses and potentially help you know our, our own research in particular areas. Uh, all of what you talked about, John, uh, reflects uh, serious challenges. Uh, uh, obviously, tremendous pressures on you. When uh, when I was researching for today, I came across an article. Uh, it was entitled "Senior High Grad Talks of Freaking Awesome NSA Job," and I thought, oh, I, I want to see what what's happened to that kid. Well, that kid is 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 John Darby, uh, and it was a. <laughs> uh, an article about uh, a talk that he gave at Montana State University, I think, uh, mm -hmm. a few years ago. So uh, tell us about the freaking awesome side. What what gives you satisfaction and, and uh, what makes you get up in the morning and, and really want to go to work? So people have asked me that a lot. I've been in this business a long time. And actually, I retired and came back you know, at, to NSA. But uh, there's really three big reasons why I'm still at NSA after all this time. One is the chance to be part of something bigger than myself and making a difference. I'm going to talk about the impact, and, and uh, that's that's really rewarding to know that you're making a difference for, for all of us here. The second thing is the intellectual challenge of working at NSA. I learn something every single day. I'm going to talk about this telecommunications ecosystem that we need to, to, to operate in. You know, I learn about that every single day. It's continually evolving. I mean, I tell people, <laughs> it's kind of funny. At one point, I thought about, before I started working at NSA, I was thinking about going to the State Department, be a diplomat. I was thinking about law school and, and be a lawyer. And I was like, you know, I'm doing both of those now. <laughs> you know, and I talk about the working with foreign governments and intelligence issues, working with lawyers on legal issues, you know, uh, intelligence law, constitutional law. Um, so it's the intellectual challenge is, is kind of the second reason why I've stayed there for so long. And the third is just working with the great people that are there. I mean, the, the, the set of folks, the caliber of folks that work within NSA and the intelligence community at large is, you know, second to none in terms of, you know, motivated, dedicated. They will, you know, I've called up numerous people in the middle of the night and said, I need you to come in for do this. I haven't heard one complaint. Yeah, I've had people say, I need you to go to the other side of the world. I need you to go to Iraq or Afghanistan. You know, Roger up. You know, they'll go do it. So it's just, it's the, it's inspiring to work among a set of folks like that that are so devoted to getting the job done and making a difference. It's, it gets back to my company. You know, so it, it's, it's freaking awesome. You know, so. <laughs> In that same article, you mentioned at your talk that that a few years ago that talk never would have taken place because the the NSA was so secretive. And and I've read NSA is has been described as no such agency and never say anything. And so so that that talk that you gave was was part of a presumably a change in in strategy. What are the some of the challenges and and opportunities from for, for that shift? Well, I think, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of, it's been an evolution. So when I hired on an NSA, it really was the, the no such agency. And we were told you can't tell anybody you work at NSA. If anybody asks, you work for Department of Defense, which is NSA is part of the Department of Defense. So you're telling the truth. You're just not saying this specific agency. Um, and that's evolved o over time. And kind of a, a General Hayden, when he was the director in the late 90s and uh, in, in early 2000s, he started opening him up more, speaking more publicly about what NSA did. And that was really formed by just before he started at the, as the director of NSA. He was at a movie with his wife, and the movie was Enemy of the State. 
and you know NSA was the big bad guy in that movie, and he's like, oh my gosh, you know, and this is how NSA is being characterized, and and we need to counter that narrative and really be more open about what we do. So he kind of started the trend line being more open, and then uh, with the unauthorized disclosures by you know he who must not be named, he'll say, but. Uh, uh, with Edward Snowden, it really served as a wake-up call that you know we really needed to, you know, if if you don't say talk about what you do at NSA, people will make it up, you know, and, and that's the narrative that came out about NSA in the wake of those disclosures was really distorted, and you know, and the narrative took hold before NSA had a chance to really counter. You know, here's the facts. Here's the real story behind that. So we've, uh, you know, had made a strategic de- decision a number of years ago is to have NSAers get out and talk more, you know, about what we do, which is can be really uncomfortable because we live in a classified world. And going out and talking to, to the public in an unclassified way, you know, it can be a little tricky sometimes. On the less than freaking awesome part <laughs> of your job, uh, obviously, uh Edward Snowden has a, a book out now. It's a bestseller, although it's dropped quite a bit, and Demi Moore's book is number one uh, at, at this point. But uh, what can you talk about that you think is important for, for us to understand? And again, it's this this narrative that somebody else built that you didn't build. And in, in, in the research that I've done uh, there, uh, essentially he's deified himself, he's demonized you, but there's a lot of good uh, information out there to, to really get to the heart of of the issues and they, they cross a lot of issues. So, so can you comment on, on some of the dimensions of what, what his disclosures uh, really presented to you? Yeah, I'll say, well, first of all, he, he disclosed a lot, you know, which is really disappointing to a lot of us that spent our careers, you know, developing a lot of the, the capabilities, relationships and so on that, you know, took millions of dollars in people's lives or put at risk in doing some of these things. Um, the, the flip side is, if there was any good that came out of it, from my perspective, has really prompted this public dialogue about, you know, privacy and security, which is that's a valid discussion we need to continually have about, you know, the tools of, you know, the national security apparatus relative to uh, civil liberties and, and privacy protections. Now, one of the things that was disappointed as an NSA or is the way that narrative took hold. Um, you know, analogy I like to use is. Edward Snowden, when he was within this system, he would uh, say he had access to the blueprints. You know, it's almost like a car. You know, if someone has the access to the blueprints of how a car is constructed, but didn't have access to the owner's manual of how you actually drive that car and how you use those pieces. So that's the piece he didn't have, you know, how that system was actually operated. So the narrative that took hold was here are the pieces of this. And then, well, obviously, if these are the pieces, this is how it's used. And in fact, it, it wasn't the case. Now, go back to and my point early on about this third component of our mission is this privacy and civil liberties protection. And I tell you, it was disappointing to see that somehow that the narrative took hold that those of us with NSA didn't care deeply about the privacy and civil liberties uh, Expectations, And I like to say it is baked into our DNA. When you start working at NSA in the operations organization where you're dealing with this really sensitive information, that is baked into your DNA from day one. You know, it, it is it's almost like I heard another analogy. Our one of our former deputy directors said, if you think of what it takes for a train engine or a train to move forward, it takes two tracks two you know, two iron rails. Um, it, and to do our job, it's we have to do that intelligence, the production mission, but we also have to do the privacy and civil liberties. It's not one or the other. We have to do both equally. So that's one piece that I was disappointed that didn't come out. But again, back to the good thing, it was we, it did prompt this public uh, dialogue, uh, privacy versus uh, civil liberties, which is something we need to have as a nation continually, I think. 
there's, there's an overlap with with the dimension of of uh, Snowden and how he portrays himself, and 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 obviously current focus on on whistleblowers. And I heard your colleague, I think it was Ann Newberger, talk about the difference between a leaker and a whistleblower. But could could you talk a little bit about how the whistleblower statute works, or in the regulations, et cetera, and and essentially what seems to me from what I've read. Uh, is that although he said he tried to to get this information up the chain, there's no evidence of it whatsoever, and that was a finding of the of the House Intelligence Committee in in their report in 2016, I think, or 2013, I think. Mm-hmm. So there are mechanisms for whistleblowers to report fraud, waste, abuse, or, or misuse of the system, um, and as you said, there is no evidence that Mr. Snowden tried that at all. Um, and the, the whistleblower um, protections are in place so that somebody can anonymously raise a concern, and then those concerns are investigated. And the process is in place and uh, can and, and has been used. Can, on, on that subject again, can, can you talk at all about the proportion of, the, of what he stole uh, uh, that related to the metadata and his whistleblowing versus all of the other stuff, because as I read from the uh, uh, intelligence committee report, there was the the vast majority of documents that he stole had nothing to do with that and and really revealed tremendous intelligence uh, uh, information that that really had had to do with with your ongoing legitimate operations. And and I I read one uh, statistic that said if you printed out all of the stuff he sold, he stole, it would be a stack about three miles high. I mean, it was a tremendous uh, uh, dump that he did. So I'm not going to get into specific numbers or size or stacks of paper or anything. This is all public. We'll we'll (laughs) say that, you know, at least from my optic, you know, yeah, he took a lot. You know, and a lot more than what was um, you know, evident in the public narrative. Okay. Um, shifting a little bit, uh, question, how do you ensure there are no blind spots? Uh, we know to be concerned about China and Russia as threats, but how do you learn of emerging enemies? I mean, that's a great question. It's always, you know, as big as NSA is, as big as the intelligence community is, we simply do not have the resources to cover the world, you know, with all the needs. So just as I talked about, network owners have to, you know, decide where to put their emphasis and where to accept risk. That's where in, in the business of, you know, where do, we, where do we prioritize and where do we accept risk? So we do have, as I say, we have to maintain a degree of agility to be able to lift and shift as things become more important to national security. Um, and you know there there always is a risk that you know something can pop out out of nowhere that we hadn't expected. So it's really you know we we place our bets on where the most likely areas in which we need to uh, uh, align our resources. Just on that point, uh, I had another question here. Uh, how did September 11th get past us? Uh, and and it relates to whether there was intelligence there that that would have suggested uh, that we could have identified uh, the threat. And, and certainly from, from what's in the public arena, it, it, uh, there's a, uh, a characterization that it was, it was basically lack of good interface between the CIA and the FBI in intelligence that was out there. It seems like a lot of what, what has been done since then is to break down those, those silos and in, in, in the, uh, the differences in perspective. Uh, uh, and, and obviously the alliance of you and the Cyber Command may be part of that. Can you, can you chat at all about uh, those yeah. dimensions? So talk about 9-11. And you know, it's all out of the 9-11 Commission report and so on. Yeah, there were bits and pieces that you know, if we had been linked up more closely as a community and shared information more freely and, and uh, fluidly across the, the organizational boundaries, perhaps we could have detected and prevented that. I say perhaps there is, you know, there's no certainty you know, in the intel world. Now, 9-11 did prompt us to look and say, boy, we've got to knit as a, together better as a community. And that was 9-11 was a fundamental prompted a fundamental transformation in how the IC works together. And it, it is. Yeah, and 
and it started right out of the gate. Frankly, we've connected. We we operate as one right now across CIA and FBI, DHS, DIA, um, the military commands. It is, you know, we have folks integrated in each other's organizations. We work side by side on things. I mean, one example I tell you after the Bin Laden operation, I, w- I was down on Capitol Hill briefing. Uh, uh, some of the committees on what had happened with the hunt and the operation itself. And one, uh, what I can't remember if it was a Senator or a Congressman said, well, nobody can tell me that the military and IC doesn't work together anymore. And, and my inside voice is like, we've been doing this for years. You know, it's the, 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 the story that got out publicly about how we work really closely together in this particular operation. Yeah, it's true. We did work really closely together, but that, happens continually now so it's uh as an nsa -er, i talk practically every day you know with my counterparts across other agencies across the ic or the military services um but let's get back to the cyber and the industry partnership just as we have transformed the intel community and and in the wake of 9-11 and built those linkages and their second nature now that's where we need to get to with regard to the cyber and have those linkages across public and private sector so that they're natural, they're dynamic. It's not some extraordinary effort to share information back and forth between those two sectors and, and cooperate um, fluidly. On that, that point, uh, yesterday I heard a presentation by somebody from Cyber Command where one of the threats identified was Russian ha- hackers acting on their own economic incentive, in other words, thieves. And maybe you could ch- uh, chat about that, because I think we see that a lot in the municipal side where, where there's software out there that will li- literally take uh, a, a system for, for ransom. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. That The, the cyber world today, the, the cost of entry to become a hacker has lowered a lot. You know, in the past, you had to be pretty sophisticated, technically sophisticated, to hack into networks and steal data or, or launch destructive um, attacks. But many of those capabilities are widely available now. You know, they're cheap. They're posted on the Internet. Anybody can go grab them. You know, and, you know, the technically more sophisticated types can take these capabilities and adjust them a little bit and launch them in their particular network. So the the cost of entry is lower. And I forgot your question now as I went through that. Well, it was, it was <laughs> okay. about Russian hackers uh-huh. who were just out there to, to hold people ransom, basically. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's different from the Russian, as a, Russia as a nation state. So. Yeah, and that's the you know, ransomware is a real and, you know, it's, it's a ongoing problem. I don't see it going away anytime soon. Just to, to finish the, the point on September 11th uh, here, that questioner also said, hats off to you for the work you do. Thank you. So, Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, question, what is the NSA's strategy for recruiting leaders in some of uh, today's uh, uh, foremost uh, in-demand jobs? In other words, do, does government compensation limit your ability to, to re- recruit uh, leading leading minds? Yeah, that's a great question. That's something we, um, I don't want to say struggle with, but it's something we, we, that's at the forefront of our mind every day. How do we make sure we, we're bringing in the, 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 the type of skills that we need that are in high demand in the private sector? And government will never compete from a salary perspective with what's offered in the private sector. You know, the, the way I put it is we need to capitalize on what the government government brings, and that's in terms of the impact on the, the, the nation. You know, the worst, you know, how often do you hear you averted a war, you know, or you helped save this, you know, prevented this attack? Um, and not to say that people can't can't change the world. They can't work in the private sector, but the the, the government the, in the in the public sector at NSA, you've got a really exciting opportunity to take on hard problems that have a impact on our national security. And you know, we, our strategies, and we'll go out and target selected uh, universities, you know, with, that have you know high-end programs or the types of skills we need. Um, we do offer some, you know, incentive 
packages, you know, above and beyond for certain skill fields where we've got a record of people will, you know, stay for a few years and then move on. We want to keep people in there. Um, so it, it's a variety of things. I will say, you know, in STEM fields, uh, NSA has got, I think the last I saw is roughly 40% of our STEM workforce are women. So, you know, that's way different from the, the private sector. So, again, that's something else we offer that the private sector is not there yet. Uh, I guess over a year ago when General Nagasone mentioned the formation of the Russia Small Group, I started to track it and I couldn't find anything about it for months. And then the Washington Post reported on uh, the NSA actually going into the IRA uh, around the 2018 election. And it, you, I'm sure you can't comment on that, but but I had a feeling that uh, recruiting ability skyrocketed be, uh, because of that, simply because somebody going in and, and saving democracy uh, uh, is motivated by something other than money. So, so uh, uh, it, it's obviously a dimension that, that uh, is so critical to, to what you do. Yeah, I think in terms of the recruiting, we generally, we've got thousands of people applying for jobs in NSA. You know, our bigger issue is retaining folks. You know, if they'll come in, develop the, you know, get the clearance, develop their skills for a few years and then be in demand in the outside world and then move there, you know, for for a higher salary. So I say we need to capitalize on what NSA brings. We also need to, in my view, create a system somehow where it's more natural for people to flow between public and private sector. When we talk about the partnership that we need to grow, it's a key part of that partnership is the the people component. I want to see more people with government experience. I see intelligence community experience in the private sector and not just retired government folks, you know, at junior, mid-level, up to senior folks, and vice versa. People with industry experience and background be working in government. As people with industry experience will know what's in the art of the possible, the motivators, the drivers in the, in the commercial world. And in People with government experience can know, you know, the same thing, motivators, drivers, how that system works, so how we could more effectively work together. Uh, I'm going to combine a couple of questions here, and and that is that the, the intelligence community is under uh, uh, unprecedented attack politically, and, and uh, it, it's got to present challenges in terms of uh, how each of the, the uh, agencies in the community affect their, uh, their missions. Uh, how, do you, how do you deal with it, and how do you, you keep your folks motivated under this uh, uh, tremendous political strain? Well, I say that I'll go back to how I'm so proud to work with uh, the people of NSA as they're devoted to doing the right thing, you know, and they're focused on doing that job. And the, the politics furls out here, but, you know, we're doing the things that the, you know, that the America is asking of us to do. And that's what we're focused on. So we, we, we don't let the political swirl. We're an apolitical organization doing what uh, we're charged to do. Uh, final question here. What do you recommend to the public to read, to, to be engaged in, in really to develop a broad perspective, to be able to understand, uh, obviously, from the standpoint of open uh, source material, what's going on and, and then how uh, we as a nation should deal with it as voters and then and how we should look at it from the standpoint of, of the national security challenges that you all face? Well, that's a good question. Nobody's ever asked me that question. I have an before. answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, things like this, you know, and get informed and, and you know, try to departisanize, you know, what you may be hearing or, or seeing or, you know, if something looks a little whacked out, you know, dig a little bit deeper and see what's the sourcing, what's behind that. Um, and that's really. Uh, at least that's difficult for me because all the stuff I read, it's all, you know, inside, you know, a mix of classified stuff. And, and um, I don't know, that's really the only advice I would say. Use a variety of sources, you know, public forums like this, journals, you know, media, you know, of of both, you know, persuasions, I guess. You know, and, and then the way you can form your own opinions and views on on what you should do, how you ought to, you know, your reaction to things, I guess. 
What I found is that the Internet, for all its faults, has tremendous material. It's, mm-hmm. in many cases, primary source material. Uh, uh, and, and your own website has, has uh, very interesting stuff to, to download. But also what I've done is to, to go to House and Senate committees and look at testimony for, uh, from experts like you watch testimony. I watched General Nakasone's testimony when he was being confirmed. Mm-hmm. So, so tremendous material. It's unfiltered through the, through the media process and, and uh, something that I think we, we should all take advantage of. That's a much better answer than mine. So, <laughs> that's, uh, well, and, you're, and it's, you're it's right a never ending <laughs> process. It's continuing to unpeel that onion every day. But I'm glad you brought up about the, on the website. I mean, back on the cybersecurity advice. NSA on NSA's public website. If you look in there, if it's got some specific advice on you know, how to protect yourself, DHS does as well. So that's the role government has to you know put that advice out there and make it available so the general public can you know take take steps on their own. Very good. Well, uh, in in closing, uh, our thanks to John Darby, Director of Operations for the National Security Agency and Central Security Service. Thank you for making this trip all the way out from uh, from D.C. for this. I'm Gil Sanborn, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. Thank you. Thank you.